0: If you would, turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. So we're going to continue our kind of slow walk through the book of James, and today is looking at what could arguably considered one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. And we'll, we'll see why as we go through it. I don't want to spoil it for you, but... Um, What has been, over the centuries, proven to be a challenging passage of Scripture. And so we're going to kind of unpack it this morning. And I hope to present the case to you that there's really no controversy at all. Um, But let's dig in together. Um, Before we actually read what what we're going to read today, I want to back up a little bit. We're going to start in verse 14 today, but I want to back up Um, and be reminded of what James has said to us in the verses just before this. So last time when we um, were in James, we looked at the first half of the, uh, chapter 2 and we talked about faith and favoritism. Okay? James dealt with the sin of favoritism that had crept into the lives of his people um, who had been scattered during the persecution that came down heavily on the church in Jerusalem during the first century. And so we looked at the law of liberty, the law of love that we as believers live under, that we, we live according to the command of Christ to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We made reference to Paul's words to the church in Rome um, that, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christians are set free from their sins. That is, we are forgiven and we are freed from the condemnation and dominion of sin. And now we are to live in that freedom, forgiven, not condemned by God. And so love is the natural fruit and the necessary evidence of being justified by faith. Love is... The kind of law that governs us when we are freed from condemnation by the blood and righteousness of Christ. And we will be judged under this law of liberty. We talked about this last time. If we have not loved, we will perish. Because there will be no evidence that we are born again and justified by faith. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, not showing partiality. Remember what James said back in chapter 1. In verse 27, he said, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Further back in chapter 1, he calls us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. He calls us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so in this context, let's read starting in James verse 14, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James starts us out here with two rhetorical questions. And I would suggest that this whole section is somewhat rhetorical, a hypothetical. Not necessarily what was happening, but a probable probable thing that was happening in the lives of the believers that he was writing to. And so he asks a lot of questions as, as we walk through this, and we'll get to those. So he, he starts off with these rhetorical questions. In light of all that's been said up to, James, up to this point in James, he poses two rhetorical questions for his readers and for us today. Remember, James has been giving us these tests of faith, these tests of genuine faith from the beginning. He's been showing us what true faith is. And so he poses this first question. What good is it? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? In other words, what good is it if someone says he has faith but has nothing to show for it? That leads right into the second question Can that faith save? Is that a saving faith? If a man says he has faith, if he says, I have faith, I believe, I believe in God, I believe in Christ. He confesses to believe maybe in the death of Christ. He may even confess to believe in the resurrection of Christ. What good is such a claim if there is nothing to back it up? If there is no product, if there are no righteous deeds as the pattern of his life? What good is such faith? The answer I think James makes clear is that it's no good at all. That's the obvious answer. It's nothing but an empty confession, a claim With no evidence. If there are no works, no righteous deeds, you cannot demonstrate a changed life. When true faith is placed in Christ, we receive a new nature. The new nature will manifest itself. It's just like the theme of our Disciple Now weekend a couple of weeks ago. The theme of the weekend was redefined. When we come to true saving faith in Christ, He redefines everything about our lives. And again, when we go back and look at chapters 1 and 2, we see examples of the works that James has already mentioned to us. Being steadfast under trial. Being doers of the word. Showing no partiality. Lack of evidence of these suggests a dead faith. In John 15, Jesus said this, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, It represents somebody who's outwardly attached but there's no life flow and therefore there's no product. And so James adds at the end of verse 14, can that faith save him? Can faith not accomplished by a visible, redefined life be true saving faith? What's the answer? I would suggest that it's no. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James goes on to give us an illustration. Look at first, verse 15 again. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Again, he's giving a hypothetical, but also a probable Situation. As I was studying this over the last couple of weeks, I learned that this statement that says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, can be read a couple of different ways. First of all, the go in peace was a common greeting. It's much like we would say to someone, God bless you. Um, But the be warmed and filled could be very sarcastic and harsh like, almost as if you're saying, feed yourself, don't bother me with your problems. Or it could be very passive. Like, I hope you find someone who can help you. I tend to lean towards it being the more passive view. And it prompted me this week just to think about what's that common phrase that we use when we learn of someone's needs. It starts with, I'll be praying for you. Now, please hear me, okay? I'm not saying that we shouldn't offer to pray for people. We absolutely should, and must pray for people. However, these words can often be very empty words, especially when we have the means to meet someone's needs right then and there. Please don't ever use those words. I'll be praying for you if you don't intend to follow through. How many times have we done that? Oh, I'll I'll be praying for you. And we turn around and we walk away and it never crosses our mind again. Let those words not be empty words that come out of our mouths. Let us, let those be words that we use often because we can and we should pray for one another. But let's follow through. But to use that also in the empty way of saying, I'll be praying for you as an excuse not to help when you have the means to help is Wrong. The uselessness of this response is so obvious and offensive that James needs only to repeat his first rhetorical question. What good is it? James expects that faith will surely lead to actions to meet others' material needs. James says, if you tell someone to go in peace, be warmed and filled, but then don't give them the things necessary to help when you have the means and ability to do so, what good is that? What good is that? And so James gives a conclusion here in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. His expectation is so strong that he concludes with the most severe condemnation of faith without deeds. It is dead. These words emphasize the focus of James's concern, which is faith by itself. That is, faith without the authenticating actions. It is not that he's promoting deeds as an alternative to faith. He obviously knows the value of faith, for he called those who have faith rich. Back up in verse 5. What James is rejecting is the notion that one can have faith by itself without accompanying actions. Now, even though this is his concluding statement James doesn't stop here and we're not stopping here either. So in case you saw the last point that said conclusion and you got excited, sorry, we're just getting started. Verse 18, James goes on and he mentions a possible objection and we're going to look at this and he, an objection to what he's just said about faith by itself being dead and he also is going to give an answer to that objection. It's kind of, you can kind of see this almost as a, a brief conversation with an imaginary person. Um, read it with me, verse 18. It says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now I think, this is my opinion, opinions differ on this, but I think that the someone here is James. I think this is his humble way of putting himself into this context. And James is saying to someone, you have faith, I have works. James possesses true faith. And so he's saying to another man who's claiming to have faith without works, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith. By my works. I'm going to pick on John here for a second. It's like, it's like me and John having a conversation. And I'm talking to him about how faith is dead. How faith by itself is dead. But John says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I have faith. I have faith. And so I say to John, okay, you have faith. That's great. Let's say that you do have faith. Let's say that I have works. Here's the test. Show me your faith without works. No, seriously, go ahead. <laughs> now what I've just what I've just given John and what James gives us here is an impossible task. It can't be done. The word show by definition means to exhibit, to demonstrate, to put on display. So he says, go ahead, show me your faith. How can you show faith without works? You can't. Faith cannot be shown apart from works. So James gives us here three examples. And this is kind of how he answers the objection that he's made. Now he's going to start off with the first example. is going to be an example of dead faith. And then he's going to follow that up with two examples of living faith. So the first example... example. All right, I don't know. We'll see. Okay, Um, look at verse 19. Look what it says. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, the first part of this verse is a clear reference back to the most basic doctrine of the Old Testament. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and it's called the Shema. It says this, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I sense perhaps a bit of sarcasm in James right here. You believe that God is one. That's fantastic. Even the demons believe this. The demons believe in the oneness of God. They know the truth about God, but the difference between you and the demons is that their belief causes them to tremble. Why do the demons shudder or tremble? They tremble because they know the end result of their belief. They know what their destiny is. Do you remember Jesus' encounter with two demon-possessed men in Matthew 8? Listen to this. This is Matthew eight twenty-eight and 29 said and when he came to the other side of to the country of the gadarenes two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way and behold they cried out what have you to do with us o son of god have you come here to torment us before the time you don't call someone the son of god if you don't believe that's who he is they knew who jesus was They believed he was who he said he was. And they knew that their time was coming and that they would be tormented for eternity. Even the demons believe and they tremble. The faith that James is confronting here is worse than that of the demons. The dead faith of the demons is getting them nowhere and they know that. They're simply trying to hang on as long as they can. These people with dead faith that James calls foolish in the next verse think that they are just fine. And that's the scary thing here. And that's what James is fighting against. He's attacking a faith that is dead, demonic, and useless, as he says in verse 20. True faith is more than mere intellectual assent, true faith works. In verse 20, James asks the question, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Again, another rhetorical question because James is going to go on and answer the question with two more examples. This time he's going to show two, two examples of true faith, of living faith. And so we start with Abraham. Read with me again starting in verse 21. Abraham was justified by works. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What are you getting at here? I want you to keep your finger in James and I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 20. Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Jump down to verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. When you compare that to what, James, what we just read in James, what do you do with that? Let's go on a bit further in Romans. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says for if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Jump down to verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness. Same chapter jump down to verse 23. But the words "It was counted to him" were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised, who, um, who was raised from the who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. One more look at chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes it very clear that we are justified by faith alone. Here are some other passages that echo this truth. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Galatians 2, 15 and 16, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Further down in that same chapter in verse 21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Romans 11.6, Paul says, But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Or how about this from Jesus Himself from Luke 18? He also told this parable to some who trusted in in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. John MacArthur said this about this parable. He said, This man went away justified without performing any works of penance, without doing any sacrament or ritual, without any meritorious works whatsoever. His justification was complete without any of these things because it was solely on the basis of faith. Everything necessary to atone for his sin and provide forgiveness had already been done on his behalf. He was justified by faith on the spot. So what is James getting at here when he says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? Does he not believe that a person is justified by faith alone? Of course he does. Look back at what he has already said. Chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10.17? Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the Word of Christ. So don't miss this. In the very next verse in James chapter 1, right after he said that about the implanted Word, He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be a doer. Have a faith that works because a faith without works is dead. What we need to see is that there's not a conflict here. James and Paul are fighting different problems. James is fighting a head knowledge only view of faith that neglects works. And so he stresses the importance of works. Paul, on the other hand, is fighting against the teaching that works of the law are necessary to be a true member of the people of God. Paul needs to emphasize the truth that people are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. While Paul emphasized that faith alone saves, James emphasizes that saving faith is never alone. Both Paul and James use the same example of Abraham. Abraham. And they quote the same verse. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a matter of timing. Now what do I mean by that? James says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar. But the offering of Isaac was some 40 years after God made the covenant with Abraham and counted his belief as righteousness. In Galatians 2, Paul is referring to works that precede conversion. No one can earn salvation. It's a gift of grace. And James is referring to works that follow conversion. One who is truly saved will act like it. And so what I want to suggest to us is that Paul and, Paul and James are not standing here toe to toe fighting against each other. Instead, they're like soldiers in the same army, standing back to back, fighting a common enemy coming from different directions. Another way to look at this is the meaning of justification. The word justified has two meanings. Number one, it means to acquit or to treat as righteous. And secondly, it also means to vindicate, to show or to demonstrate as righteous. Definition number one is what Paul uses in Romans 4. He was acquitted, treated, and described as righteous. And definition number two, I think, is what James uses. He was vindicated, shown, and demonstrated to be righteous in the act of a willingness to sacrifice his son. That's what they're talking about um, when it, in reference to Abraham. Abraham. For Paul, justification is a legal declaration of righteousness before God. James, however, used justification in the sense of being righteous before people. So Paul is saying, yes, he was justified by grace through faith as recorded in Genesis 15. And James is saying, and yes, he was justified before men in Genesis 22, some 40 years later. Good works are open to observation by others. Faith is not. Therefore, good works make faith visible. Good works are never Please hear me. Good works are never the root or the cause of salvation, but they are always the fruit or the result of salvation. Let me say that again. Good works are never the root or the cause of salvation, but they are always the fruit or the result of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8-10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man can boast. But you can't stop there. The next verse is very important. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. John fourteen, fifteen, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Matthew five, sixteen, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. John 14 12 truly truly I say to you whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and we read this this week in John 8 verses 30 and 31 in the W4 it says as he was saying these things many believed in him and in the next verse it says Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him if you abide in my word In other words, if you continue in my word, if you obey my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So let's get back to James and we'll start to wrap this up. In verse 22, James says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Here's what MacArthur says about this, There's no argument. There's no debate. Works support the reality of saving faith. Where you have a man who has imputed righteousness, you have a man who has manifest righteousness. Where you have a man who is made just before God, you have a man who will be made just before men. Where you have a man who has received righteousness, you will have a man who will show that righteousness. That's Paul and James put together. James then gives a second example of true living faith in the person of Rahab. And I'll just touch on this briefly. James says that Rahab was justified by works when she received the spies and sent them out another way. When we look at the account in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. She said, We heard about how he parted the waters at the Red Sea. We heard what you did to the Amorite kings, and our hearts melted. She said, The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Her belief that occurred before the spies ever arrived was shown and demonstrated in her willingness to hide them And to get them out of the city. I think there's something really significant to note about these two examples. Abraham and Rahab. Because they stand in such stark contrast to one another. Abraham is a Jewish man with a good reputation. Rahab, a Gentile woman with a not so good reputation. And yet you find them both mentioned in the hall of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11. And they are both mentioned. In the genealogy of Jesus. They were both justified. Before God by their faith. And justified before men. By their demonstration. Of that faith. And so at the end of this chapter. The last verse. James wraps things up. By restating his conclusion. That we mentioned a little while ago. He says, just like a body apart from the spirit is dead, faith apart from works is dead. Faith that saves produces deeds. James is writing to those who had accepted the doctrine of justification by faith, but were not living right. Telling them that such faith was no faith at all. Again, righteous action is evidence of genuine faith. So what do we do with this? What are we living in 2020 in McKinney, Texas? What do we do with this? This whole book is a series of tests of genuine faith. We've talked about that throughout. And this is just another one. Are we living our faith out? Do we have a faith that works If we say we have faith apart from any works, James says that we have a faith that is dead and no better than the faith of demons. Paul calls us to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith, to test ourselves in 2 Corinthians 13. And I believe that that's what James is asking us to do as well. Do you have a belief without behavior? Do you believe but don't obey? Do you believe to the point where you are willing to pay the price no matter what it will cost you because He is of such supreme value to you? Jesus had some strong things to say about this. Matthew 24, He said, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Faith in action. He didn't say... If anyone would come to me, that he could believe and sit in his lazy boy for the rest of his days. He calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow, to walk, to live a living faith that we're talking about not a dead faith Um, Haven's going to put a picture up on the screen I took this picture in um, last fall when we were in Nepal I watched this guy for a while plowing his field back and forth back and forth and it was fascinating to watch him and just watching him reminded me of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, which I've always found to be personally one of the most challenging passages in Scripture. But He ends that chapter with these words. He says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When a farmer plows his field like this, He's got to keep his eyes forward and he's got to keep moving. He's got to keep that ox moving because otherwise the plow does nothing. It just sits in the ground. And I think, I w- you know, I wish I had video that could show you him actually moving. But if we were, if that, just that picture, that snapshot is our life, what good is that for him to stand behind an ox with a plow in the ground and not go anywhere? What good is that? That's what James is asking us. But this man is moving his ox. He's moving the plow. Allowing the plow to dig into the ground and do the work. And one thing that you notice when these guys plow their fields, they don't look back. They can't afford to look back. Because if you look back, if you get distracted by something, then that ox is going to go the direction that you go. It's going to turn. And it's going to turn that plow and you're going to have messed up your rows and you're going to have to go back and you start again <laughs> no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of god strong words but it's what christ has called us to to put our faith into action to live life Abundantly. Delighting in Him. One thing I want to make clear as we wrap up is that we don't do any of these things in order to earn more favor with God. What I'm suggesting to us is that a redefined life, a life that has been redefined by Christ will do these things because we desire to do them. Because we desire to live in obedience to Him. Not because we think, oh, this is going to earn me some some more rewards or I'm going to get a pat on the back by God. No, I do these things. I serve Him because I want to. It gives me pleasure and I know that it brings Him pleasure. So I want to, I just want to leave us with that today. Just that, I hope you'll leave with that image in your head of the man behind the plow. Because that's the life that Christ has called us to. We're to be doers of the word. What we read in this book, we are to be doers of it. Day in and day out, obediently following him. Let's pray together.